Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey pelvic people, welcome back to Woo in 2004 on pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, terminology, clinical presentation, and prevalence. This was authored by W.H. Wu, O.G. Meyer, Keogaki, J.M.A. Menz, J.H. Van Dien, P.I.J.M. Woosman, and H.C. Osgard. A lot of names. By now, we're aware that lumbopelvic pain during pregnancy occurs and is responsible for changes in activity tolerance, quality of life, and disability in some patients. This article even notes that over 2,000 years ago, Hippocrates theorized that an irreversible relaxation and widening of the pelvis occurs with the first pregnancy, the resultant instability of the SI joints, leading to symptomatic inflammation. So it goes without saying that this is not a new experience in reproductive health. So the present systematic review focuses on terminology, clinical presentation, and prevalence. Numerous terms were used, as if they indicated one and the same entity. So the article proposes pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, PPP, and pregnancy-related low back pain, PLBP, present evidence that the two add up to lumbopelvic pain and show that they are distinct entities, even though underlying mechanisms may be similar. The importance of this topic, both to the individual patient and to society at large, is the lack of systematic reviews that cover the whole area of pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain. So this present paper aims at being the first part of a comprehensive review covering terminology, clinical presentation, and prevalence. They assess pathology, diagnosis, and treatment in a later part. So these authors searched for relevant literature on Medline from 1966 through September 2002. And terminology was pretty difficult to nail down given just the variability in search terms throughout the decades. And this was the first part of their review, so this resulted in a total stock of 106 papers. As a note, they used the generic phrase pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain, which may refer to pelvic or low back pain. Later, they're going to show that pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain encompasses PPP and PLBP, as well as their combination. So let's get into clinical presentation and what they found. Some interesting facts regarding pain, they noted that often the onset of pain occurs around the 18th week, but it reaches its peak intensity between the 24th and the 36th week of pregnancy. Another piece that they found was that pain in the first trimester may be a strong predictor of pain in the third trimester. Postpartum PPP was reported to spontaneously disappear within three months in 93% of cases, and in those other 7% of patients who didn't recover, they had a greater risk for prolonged and very serious pain. Regarding pain localization, Pain was often reported to be localized and deep in the sacral or the gluteal region, lacking that typical nerve root distribution of sciatica. And then that local pain in the SIJ can be related to our old friend, the LDL, or the long dorsal ligament. They also noted the localization of pain may even change over time. So how are these women describing their pain? 
most often they found pelvic girdle pain has been described as stabbing. Pain in the lower back has been described as a dull ache. And that in the thoracic spine, it's described as burning. Now for intensity of pain, during pregnancy, average pain intensity ratings are on the order of 50 to 60 on a 100 scale. The reported pain was mild or bearable in about half the cases and very serious in about 25%. Postpartum pain was somewhat less intense than pain during pregnancy. And then in general, interpretation of literature was difficult for these authors because the questions asked varied from study to study. So some are asking about pain in the moment, others were questions being about worse during the week or on averages. So it's kind of hard to compare apples to oranges for those study questionnaires. They then went on to look into muscle function and women with a lumbopelvic pain during pregnancy had a lower average paraspinal EMG during trunk flexion and extension than healthy pregnant women. Women who had both pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain and pregnancy-related low back pain combined had less hip abductor and back extensor endurance than women who had PPP or PLBP alone. The theory was that reductions in force weren't due to weakness per se, but more of that pain and fear of getting pain. So obviously that was speculative. For women with postpartum lumbopelvic pain, they noted some coordination changes. So for example, those in pain used less hip flexion and more lumbar flexion at liftoff. They had a larger phase lag between knee and hip extension in the upward phase and a slower completion of the upward phase of lifting. They thought this was just a compensatory pattern for reducing pain. And then regarding disability, a high frequency of problems was found for getting up from the floor at 97% and sexual intercourse at 82%. Some reported problems during sleep at night with a considerably lower frequency, and that was around 30%. For postpartum lumbopelvic pain specifically, 90% of women reported disability in standing for 30 minutes and 68% with sexual intercourse. Regarding prevalence of pain during pregnancy, they found that the average published prevalence was 45.3% with a large variation, and then that large variation being between 3.9% and 89%, so that's a really large variation. When they looked more into the reasoning for that variability, The diagnosis and high back pain were factors that significantly affect that prevalence. So high back pain meaning thoracic or cervical pain, not high as in the severity of pain. For prevalence of pain during postpartum, they found that the average published postpartum prevalence was about 25%. And again, that was another large variation, a range from 0.3% to 67%. And the reasoning behind that variability they found was that previous low back pain and patients' pain just now versus pain that had lasted for some time were some significantly contributing factors. In their analysis of the literature on the association between possible causal factors like risk factors and the occurrence of pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain, only cohort studies, case control studies, and prevalence studies were included. They identified about 34 relevant studies that had correlations, regression coefficients, or odds ratios. And then a total of 15 possible risk factors were identified. So let's look into these risk factors. 
So it was considered as strong evidence if at least 10 studies published it, with at least half of them pointing significantly to a particular factor, and there had to be no studies contradicting that. It was considered weak evidence if one or both of the positive criteria for strong evidence was not fulfilled, but at least one study reported a significant influence, and that no study contradicted that result. And then it was considered conflicting evidence if in at least one pair of studies there was significant results contradicting each other. It was considered no evidence if the factor in question was studied and there was no significant associations found. Okay, so the moment that we've all been waiting for, what are the risk factors for occurrence of pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain? They found strong evidence that strenuous work, previous low back pain, and previous PPP are risk factors for pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain. There was some weak evidence found for maternal height, maternal weight, fetal weight, the use of oral contraceptives, smoking, epidural anesthesia, and a prolonged second stage of labor. The evidence for maternal age, number of pregnancies, and maternal ethnicity was conflicting. And then there was no evidence found for maternal bone density or previous abortion. So in clinical practice, as well as the scientific literature, pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain is embedded in uncertainty. This is dating back even to when pain with pregnancy was considered hysterical pain, and even now we hear of patients hearing the normalcy and the expectation of low back pain with pregnancy. So some of the difficulties surrounding further research is going to include that there's no common accepted terminology, the difficulty of delineating the clinical picture, and the wide range of prevalence values. So that being said, there has been increasing research every decade. So let's talk about take-home points. About 45% of all pregnant women have at least some type of lumbopelvic pain during pregnancy, and about one-fourth have it in postpartum. It has been reported that 25% of all patients with lumbopelvic pain during pregnancy have very serious pain, while 8% have severe disability. There are a lot of differing terms for pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain, so be aware of the difference in presentation and nomenclature that you're going to see in articles, hear from clinicians, and referring providers are going to be using. So this article presented evidence that pregnancy-related pelvic pain is distinct from pregnancy-related low back pain, but their prognosis didn't really appear to be different. Also, just remembering that changes in muscle activity have been observed with this pain, as well as an unusual perception of the leg when the patient tries to move it, as well as some changes in motor coordination. So these are just theoretical interpretations, but the explanation remains speculative. And then I just wanted to reiterate those strong evidence risk factors for people who are repetitive learners just like me. So a reminder, they found strong evidence that strenuous work previous low back pain, and previous PPP are risk factors for pregnancy-related lumbopelvic pain. And then for another moment you may or may not be waiting for, I'll finish up week five with another bad joke. So this one's going to be pregnancy-related, but I do truly think that urology have some of the best ones, so just bear with me. So what do you call it when you're unable to find someone to help you through your pregnancy? A midwife crisis. I also wanted to say congrats for finishing week five's study guide articles. Studying for the WCS is extremely labor-intensive, and that's not a pelvic joke, because of the pure amount of topics covered and just the difficulty in knowing what's being tested. One thing I just wanted to mention is I've noticed 
Most WCS applicants are some of the most experienced pelvic floor PTs and just therapists in general that I've met. For exams like these with great areas of studying and materials, most people aren't jumping in after one to two years of practice, and most people that I've met are way overqualified for the exam. And maybe overqualified isn't the word, but they have a ton of experience to make up for the fear of jumping into an exam that doesn't really have the easiest study guide to follow, which is probably why you're listening to me. So basically, congrats to you for doing something really hard and really uncertain. I'm willing to bet if you're listening to this, you're an experienced provider who will do great on your exam. So anyways, wishing everyone who's listening the best of luck for continued studying. You hit the five-week study milestone, which may not feel like a big deal to you, but I'm just going to remind you that it is. All right. So next up is week six, which stinks for me because it's only one article, and that's by Van Dyke in 2015 on health issues for menopausal women. The rest of the study guide is in the Erian text, chapters 19, 20, and 25. So I'll meet you back here for our one article, and then we're on to week seven. Thanks for listening. Bye, pelvic people.